Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you might not necessarily expect. And if you've looked at the title for this particular episode, which is Emotion at Work in Job Crafting, you might be thinking, what on earth has job crafting got to do with emotion in the workplace? Well, so even though a lot of the podcasts that I do do get really nerdy about emotions in particular, um, we also look beyond that. So, for example, fans of the show will remember Monica Parker from episode 23, where we looked at the interplay of physical spaces and how we feel. So looking at um, how the spaces that we work in can affect our, our emotions, but also how our emotions can affect the physical spaces that we work in. And we're doing something similar here. So we're starting to look at how does the way that we feel about either our work or the work that we do, how is that affected by um, a discipline that our, uh, our guest today uh, has written a book about, and we'll hear more about that as we go, um, but looking into job crafting in particular. So anyway, um, oh, oh, the other thing is, um, on brand, on message, um, uh-huh. our guest today <laughs> is an evidence-based practitioner. So I know he takes a, a strong evidence base in his work. Um, so he's right on brand for the podcast. But anyway, enough of me. Let's get our guest on the air. So welcome to the Emotion Word podcast, Rob Baker. Hello, Rob. Hey, Phil. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the, the show. I think we mentioned at the start of this, um, I love the, the, the kind of conversations that you, that you have and you have with your guests. So I'm hoping we have a, a good and interesting conversation today, which I have no doubt that we will. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, similarly, I have no doubt that we will. I'm really, really looking forward to today. Um, way back from when, I think it was around this time last year, where we were both at the uh, CIPD's Applied Research Conference in Nottingham, if I remember rightly. Um, I think I was presenting some of my research and you were presenting some of yours. Um, and I was fascinated at the time to hear more about kind of what, what you were doing. I've heard a, I'd heard a little bit about it and thought, that just sounds a bit like a load of old rubbish to me. Um, and then when I heard you talk about it some more, I was like, oh, okay, I think this guy's got a point. So I'm delighted to, to have got you on the podcast. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to today. Great, great. And similarly, if you think that anything I'm saying might be a load of old rubbish, challenge me on it. I'm really happy to kind of reflect and and um kind of challenge my perspective as well so okay yeah all right sounds good thank you thank you for giving me permission that makes my lo- life a lot easier so that's good that's good um all right so as per usual for the emotional world podcast um we begin with a unexpected yet innocuous question uh, to get to know our guest a little bit more so what i would like to know from you then rob is what pub sticks out in your memory Oh, okay. That, that's a really good. So the, immediately, I, I, I'm recording this in Durham, but my kind of heart oh, okay. lives in Sheffield. So, so in terms of, so immediately kind of to Sheffield and probably the um, Kellam Island and the, and the Fat Cat. So that's kind of the quintessential kind of um, real ale um, pub um, in Sheffield, which there are lots of them, but I've had kind of lots of... Um, opportunities to go meet people there and different social okay. activities and we've they've, they've got back room that we've used for kind of um club nights and social activities um lots of get together so um yeah the fat cat and Callum island in sheffield was the first one that kind of jumped to jumped to mind okay and um, what were the club nights that you at the risk of sounding really innuendo-y what were the club nights that you used to do in the back room yeah, they're not very, and not that exciting, unfortunately. They're generally orienteering um, AGMs and orienteering kind of uh, South Yorkshire orienteers um, for meetups. Um, some Christmas do's were held there as well. Um, okay. So, so it was, yeah, a lot, I'm saying I've, I've, I, for work and for kind of play and for pleasure, lots of different kind of activities were taking, taking place in the fact that and lots of kind of interesting 
people from all kind of walks of life in there as well, which is that you always, you're always assured of a kind of interesting conversation with someone and interaction um, and a good pint of beer, which for me is kind of quite important as well. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I do like a good pint of beer. So orienteering featured a couple of times in there then. So is that, is that one of your um, extracurricular activities then? Yeah, so it's something that um, as a junior, I could have started when I was about 10 doing orienteering and kind of cross-country running. And oh, okay. it could have really um, increasingly could have uh, could seriously and competitively uh, over my kind of... Over you could compete at orienteering? <laughs> you, definitely, well, you definitely can, yeah. So wow. um, it was, and I was lucky enough to to compete for, for Great Britain, actually, when I was um, a, a kind of young younger man. So in terms of as a junior and in my kind of twenties and, and kind of orienteering gave me the opportunity to kind of travel all over the country in the UK, but kind of compete kind of internationally as well. And in terms of Sweden, Scandinavia is really popular. And now it's very much, I'm kind of going back to it for the grassroots of my family and taking them along to orienteering and introducing them to the sport. So it's, so it's a really uh, something that I really enjoy. It's a mix of getting outdoors and, getting into the, the, the woods and um, often or the kind of moorland country yeah, yeah. and having a kind of purpose to it, uh, a bit of challenge, physical and mental kind of challenge combined at the same time. So they could have, that's kind of right up my, right up my street. Well, I did not know that a, um, uh, orienteering could be a competitive sport or B that you could compete at it for, for your country. So not only have I got somebody who's interested in job crafting, I have got, a, a Great Britain uh, athlete then on the podcast today. Yeah, for, former, I think former is very, oh, very much in the former, unfortunately. Uh, okay. but the, uh, so the most important resource on the show notes, I'll send a link to the British Orienteering fixtures. So if anyone read and pique their interest, that's probably the number one resource that people will be looking for um, at the end of today's, today's discussion. Wow. That, so yeah, genuinely, please send a link to the to the list of competitions so that you can get to an orienteering competition near you as a result of this podcast. Wow. That's brilliant. I love that. See, now, isn't that, I just love that, uh, like an unexpected question just gets us to orienteering. That's wicked. I love that. Um, uh, so for me then, I think there's there's been a few um, kind of uh, important pubs in my life, um, but I'd probably say the one that held the most meaning for me was the Crown and Cushion. Uh, so it was the it was in the centre of Bristol um, after I'd finished work at McDonald's when I when I first started working there, uh, that would be the place that we go after the shift. And then I joined the pool team and um, played for the pool team for oh, too, way way too many years. Um, drank way too many beers, spent way too much money behind the bar, wasted way too much money on fruit machines um, uh, in the crown and cushion. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a big big kind of formative pub for me lots of stuff happened in there went from being single to being you know having a girlfriend to being engaged and the barmaids from the pub came to the wedding and all sorts so it's um yeah been a big it was a, a big part of a uh, big part of my life wow big connection then with a with a with a with that pub community yeah yeah definitely and then it got knocked down <laughs> when they when they redeveloped the city center of bristol to put in cabot circus it was one of the properties that was then earmarked for for demolition to build all the new stuff um so it was a, a uh, there wasn't a tear in my eye actually i was a little bit sad but there wasn't a tear in my eye um but yeah there was a i think it must have been at least uh yeah it must have been at least 10 years that i drank there for so it was you know a big um uh, big big chunk of time you know a quarter of my life that was my local so yeah some good memories oh brilliant 
so when when you orienteer then and this is where you can tell me off for making a an appropriate link um but when you're orienteering i'm guessing there's hundreds of different ways that you can run that there's a hundred different ways that you can um, i like what you're doing here phil i like it carry on yeah I like thank, it. thank you that you can orienteer so i guess if you're like uh you know if you're competing then you got you you dropped off at a particular destination you need to get somewhere else i'm guessing that's the the the, the premise but how you get there is completely up to you so would there have been some job crafting at play when you were competing so interesting it's probably an interesting analogy i must admit i haven't haven't thought about it. you know, you are the first person to kind of make the link so i suppose the the well, and we'll, i'll give a definition of job crafting in a second but very much oh, okay. hearing, the the idea is that you that you kind of basically uh, yeah, you're given a, a route to follow um, from a starting point and the, the winner of the competition if you can do it competitively is the first person to get around and the art of it is around using your individual kind of strengths um, to to work out what's the best route for you so for some people that might be going along paths because you're a faster runner others it could be going through the terrain and doing it in a more tricky way in terms of using your navigational skills whereas if you're not such a strong navigator you want to kind of minimize any mistakes so you take easier routes into, into the different checkpoints and controls which which could um kind of <clears throat> on the face of it be slower but for yeah, you okay. a better way of performing in terms of making sure you're not going to make mistakes so in terms of job crafting as a, in terms of work very much i suppose that you you do have kind of clear outputs for most people will have clear outputs in terms of what they're trying to do and the best organizations i think are those that enable people to find their own way to delivering those outputs rather than being prescriptive in terms of saying this is the route that you have to follow okay so there, is, there is certainly autonomy and freedom personal freedom and choice are at the center of both kind of job crafting and orienteering and maybe that's one of the reasons that i'm i'm interested in in both i hadn't thought about it but i will do now so thank you <laughs> all right so you said you're going to give us a, a definition of job crafting there so do you want to do that now yeah, so job crafting um, is making small and subtle changes to how you do your job to make it a better fit to your passions, your strengths, and your kind of interests. So it's not necessarily a whole scale kind of re reimagining of the job itself. It's kind of making smaller changes. Um, and the way that I often describe it is the way that you might think about a semi-tailored suit. So if you go into a shop and see a kind of a saying, this suit could be semi-tailored to you what effectively you're doing is you're saying this, this, the color of the suit there, the kind of the fabric and the style of it is not going to change. But what you can do with the suit is make it um, change the dimensions of it a little bit. So it's a better fit for you. So it feels kind of more comfortable um, and you could maybe looks better as well. And similarly in terms of jobs, your the basic job that you're doing is there. It's, it's fixed in terms of what your the kind of key core elements of it are, but job crafting encourages you to make small changes to it, to make that a better, more personal, more comfortable fit. Okay. So that's kind of how I kind of introduce it. Um, and, and I guess, so, that, so if, if I was to be, you know, so if I take up your challenge from earlier on then to kind of do the... Well, I don't know if I should have said that now, Phil. I was wondering about it. <laughs> um, so I guess part of me might think um, two things, and we'll, we'll take each of them in turn. So one of the things I might think is, isn't that just what everybody does anyway? So isn't that just like common sense that you, you're given a task to do and you then go, right, how can I do this best for me? And then I, I play with it and adapt it as I go. Um, or the second one might be that's, that's all well and good for people that work in offices um, or, you know, have uh, or work for the, one of the big four consulting firms. 
that if I was, uh, and to quote Simon Heath, if I was a panel beater from Sully Hull, um, there's only one way I can beat a panel. So thanks very much for all your job crafting stuff, Rob, but actually that doesn't really work for me. Yeah, it's both good good challenges I'll kind of, uh, or questions, I suppose. And I'll kind yeah. of, both of them. So, the, the, so I think a lot of people, when you introduce job crafting, will say, I've done this, whether they've done it deliberately or not. Okay. But what, the, but what I think is distinct from just day-to-day work and kind of crafting is the fact that crafting at the center of it is, is someone deliberately doing their work in a way that, that makes the job more personal to themselves, makes the use of their strengths, their passions, makes it, makes it um, more them, as it were, in terms of the job. So you may be doing this without any, you might naturally just be kind of changing the way you do duties because you think it's a better, more effective way of doing it. But if you're not yeah. doing it deliberately, if you're not doing it with kind of foresight, if you're not really thinking about how you can make that job kind of better, more meaningful, more engaging for you, then, then you're not kind of maybe fully doing kind of job crafting in a technical perspective in the way that you describe it from a research perspective. So I think for me, the kind of the changes around doing it deliberately with foresight um, and with kind of planning rather than just doing it kind of without knowing that you're doing it. So in a way that you can be active in your, people can be kind of, um, <clears throat> kind of a runner say or a jogger or, or kind of or whatever on the street you can be active yeah yeah but you can sometimes change it to say actually if i'm going to be a runner i'm going to start being a bit more kind of thoughtful about how i plan my activities and maybe the races i enter or whatever similarly with job crafting you may be kind of you may be doing lots of of changes to your job on a day-to-day basis but if you're not doing it deliberately and actively i'd say you're maybe not tapping into the the kind of full um, benefits of job crafting in the way that I would describe it to other people because that proactivity is is at the heart of what's what's kind of what's going on. So that's the first first point. Okay, so let's just stick, can we stick on that one just for a minute, before, and we'll, we'll come back to our panel beta from Sonic on in a second. So it's the intentionality behind it, then you're saying. So it's, I mean, so and, and I'm with you completely in that. One of the things that I talk about uh, a lot in the work that I do is that if we're going to do something like let's get let's do it deliberately and let's do it on purpose let's not just do it haphazardly or do it by accident or do it kind of by osmosis if we're going to do something let's do it deliberately and on purpose so one of the things that i do is um uh, outside of work as i'm a governor and that that affords me i'm a governor of my local primary school that affords me some uh, some interesting insight into uh, into a workplace where I have, you know, where I've got no vested interest beyond my children go to the school. Um, and, and, I, and I find it fascinating, you know, that we, we talk about, oh, well, that, that will just happen. Okay, well, all right, but why, why, are we le- why are we just letting it happen or why are we hoping it will happen? You know, what are we doing to actually, you know, do that deliberately and on purpose? So, for example, I had a conversation with um, a, a while ago about parent communication and parent engagement. And well, you know, parents know what's happening because we send them a, a text round. The text round is like a um, an automated email system that then will e- you can either email by class or you can email by. You know, it's like a mailing list essentially, um, and, and and that's you know. So therefore, parents are engaged. I'm like, well, not really, because what we're doing is we're talking at people. We're not we have we're not deliberately and intentionally and, and purposefully saying right, let's engage the parent community and whatever this this thing is that we're looking to talk about we just we broadcast at them by sending out a um uh, you know a text train so i i can see the the intentionality of it to be rather than just going oh i know i like 
um, I know I like things ordered and structured, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'll, I'll put things into a uh, you know into a spreadsheet or into a formula or into a t- into a to do list or whatever that might be because that works for me. It's about if I've interpreted you correctly, it's about looking kind of more than that and going right. How how can I work for me to be at my best, and then how can I shape lots of aspects of my work to allow me to um, to make the best use of my passions and my strengths and and the stuff that I'm good at. Yeah, I think that that I would agree with everything you've you've said, and I could separately have a rant about um, engagement with schools and primary schools in particular, but we won't we won't do that. We'll stay on topic. But the, okay. um, the but I think all the words you you mentioned around the intentionality, purposefulness being deliberate are yeah. all things that you would see within job crafting. And I think also we need to be careful assuming that everyone does this in the fact we know that, well, we say we know. Oh, well done. You people, caught yourself. I was going to catch you on that. You know, when, people, when people <clears throat> have, have kind of surveyed people to, to analyze their job crafting behavior in terms of the ask questions is, do you deliberately shape your kind of tasks and activities? Do you, um, to what extent do you try and make things better? For example, there, and there's again, I can send you some some links um, at the end of this, some sort of resource links that we've got in terms of say questionnaires that you might want to to ask to evaluate people's job crafting behaviours. Um, Not everyone necessarily associates with it. It's something that a lot of people that I know do do this kind of naturally without thinking about it. But I think it's 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 dangerous to assume that that's something that everyone does do and that's two aspects of that one is that maybe they haven't got the afforded the opportunity to do it and that comes back to the panel beta we can touch in a second and others is that people just don't necessarily see them a maybe have the confidence and um, to do it or the opportunity to do it either so so i think it's 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 definitely intentionality is is part of it but it's it's some i think it also we need to be a bit careful about assuming this is something that naturally everyone everyone does i think when i describe it most people can can visualize, understand what I'm talking about. Either they've seen it themselves, they've done it themselves, or seen other people do it. And so it's relatable, but I think it's it's important we, we, we're a bit careful about that. And maybe I can give you an example, just in yeah, terms of, this will link a little bit to maybe to touch into the panel beta stuff. So one of the, um, part of the work I do, I'm fascinated by job crafting stories and, and encouraging people to ex- kind of deliberately explore job crafting. And to do it as an, and as an experiment, again, for me, the idea of purposefulness is to understand actually, if I do this and act in this way, am I going to, is there going to be kind of positive or negative benefits from this? Am I, should I continue doing this? You know, be, be kind of curious about what the outcomes of changes will be. And um, so we did, I did some work with them within a call center because often when I, when I'm, I'm challenged on this by kind of within organizations, they ask me, I ask them to, to kind of test this out with different groups of people, those that you think are going to be, Kind of very receptive to it those that you think are going to challenge it and those we don't think it's going to work effectively so okay. i did work with virgin virgin money and um and they're very happy for me to talk about the case study they featured in the, in the book and they one of the areas that they asked me to to test them was in the call center and one of the things that one of the when i ran a session with the with the um, call center team one of the individuals was saying what matters to me what what's important to me is the fact that i feel i'm helping customers so she, that's kind of her mindset and that's her kind of one of the things that was important to her as an individual. Okay. So she probably would be doing that on a day-to-day basis anyway. In terms of her, in terms of her work, she, she would always, when she's picking up the phones, be trying to help people. That's the kind of spirit that she was approaching every kind of call, which you'd hope most people were, but I don't, having spoken to a lot of call contact centers, you wonder sometimes whether people <laughs> have that perspective. 
Um, but she also realized that she had little opportunity maybe within her day-to-day in terms of the kind of call center itself to make kind of big changes to her tasks. Because she was thinking about how can I shine more of a light on this? So what she did was actually, she wrote down, she put a diary on the seat of her car but before she drove off at the end of the day. She just wrote down, jotted down her best customer experience for that day. So okay. she, the reason she was doing it is because she wanted to kind of recognize and and kind of almost celebrate to herself that she was making a difference to customers and remember the people she was helping rather than necessarily some of the customers that were maybe more frustrating and um, weren't as, um, as positive as she wanted them to be. So she wrote this down and then over time, the kind of list got bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, she found, again, from this idea of being deliberate, because she was, I, as part of the workshops I, I, ran, I ran with them, I got them yeah. to kind of reflect on how, what they felt afterwards. And she said one of the things that she noticed and this wasn't the purpose of the driver for the job crafting, but she noticed that she left in a more positive frame of mind because she was thinking about her positive ex- customer experience before she left. And she saw this list growing every day when she was adding to it. You know, so she felt that she was making a difference to, to customers and helping people. And, and so rather than going home and, and ruminating and being frustrated about the, the calls that didn't work very well, the customers that she couldn't help in the way that she wanted to, she was focusing on the things that went well. So she kind of buffered her for a little bit from those negative experiences. And that wasn't the reason that she did it, but that's kind of, it was an outcome. And if she hadn't been purposeful and deliberate to use your language, or intentional to use your language in yeah. terms of this job crafting, she wouldn't have noticed that or picked that up. So that's kind of one example in a call center where they could have, obviously they've got low, low autonomy. Another example in terms of, in examples where the people have got low autonomy, where yeah. people basically hasn't much discretion to change the task. I encourage people to think about what small and tiny changes or micro changes that they can make to their job. And then when I kind of often challenge people to do something in less than five or 10 minutes a day or an hour a week. So it's really equivalent of going to a loo break effectively. So it's people approach this with kind of a, a bit more playfulness it's kind of low stakes if it works or not but also as we know from kind of habit and kind of building it's easy to start small and build up for it and then kind of be over ambitious and not kind of reach your, reach your targets so one of the things that someone again stuck in my mind from the call center was that they decided that they wanted one of their strengths that mattered to them was was um tidiness or kind of clarity and okay. they got frustrated if the customer notes that they saw weren't as clear as they could be and again if you imagine everyone's busy writing notes down they're not always going to be as clear and crystal um legally coherent as you want them to be okay. so once a day she gave herself permission to tidy up her notes um, in terms of the um for one customer so five minutes a day she'd invest in terms of saying she saw some notes she thought particularly bad she would kind of tidy them up and she decided when to do it. She couldn't do it for everyone because she had kind of calls to, um, to receive and kind of uh, there were targets to, to meet, but she yeah. couldn't afford to do it once a day. And the unintended consequence of that is that people noticed that she has a certain style in terms of her notes. So I can't remember exactly, I'm going to say Sally, but it may not have been Sally in terms of her name. She, people were saying when you can tell Sally's notes a mile off when you see them because they're just brilliant. They're kind of, her colleagues notice this, that they're really good. Mm. And also they realize that they, that their customers get a better res- result because of the fact that they can serve them better because they understand the notes more, which again make, makes sense. Yeah. And so again, this was an unintended consequence of someone doing a small change within a, an environment where you'd think there wouldn't be any discretion in terms of job crafting, but they, but they found that they, they found it. So I think I, I again, think we sometimes make assumptions that this group can't do this or this group can do this or this group don't want to. And I think, again, it's for my, we talked about taking evidence base. I'm really interested in testing these hypotheses to see if they come true. And today I've, I have been 
the one the examples that stick in my mind tend to be the related to the jobs that you wouldn't expect people to do this so they're kind of you mentioned the big four kind of knowledge workers you'd think there's more opportunity for them to do it those stories yes they can job craft it may be easier to them they don't stick in my mind as much as the ones which are more creative from these lower kind of um, autonomy more um, restricted jobs mm. So you mentioned so when you talk through both of those examples then, so whether that be Sally with her notes or the other lady with um her her value kind of being around you know, her sorry, her enjoying the fact that she feels like she's made a difference to a customer's kind of experience on, on that particular day. When when you talked about especially when you talked about Sally, and I think you mentioned it when you talked about the other lady, you mentioned you sort of talked about unintended consequences. So if so if we stick with sally because i definitely remember using it for sally so yeah. one of the unintended consequences then was that other people were you know had admiration for for her notes they felt they could serve yeah. their, they could felt like they serve that customer better when the customer contacted them again and so on so if they were the unintended consequences what were the intended consequences of the work you were doing and were both of those virgin money yeah, that's the same call center team. So just remember front of front of mind when you were talking about the other one. So both of them did have unintended consequences. The first one was that she noted that when she went home, she was in a more positive frame of mind. And that was it. Thinking about the negative, the negative calls that, she, that she'd had during the day. So it kind of buffered those. There wasn't the, the word she used, but the one that I would kind of use to, the, to describe it. Um, so in terms of Sally's example, and again, I'm probably, I'm doing a disservice to, to Sally if it, I've misremembered her name. I think it's right. And um, she, her, her, she wanted to shine more of a light on and bring more of her strengths of um, kind of exactness to life. That's what she was wanting to do. So that was something she was okay. something that mattered to her in her job. And so it was a case of how can you do a bit more of that in your job, recognizing that you're getting calls literally all the time being fed through to you. So if you can snatch an opportunity of five or ten minutes. I would, rec you know, the recommendation that I invited people to do in terms of the job crafting was to do something that aligns to your strengths or something that you're interested and engaged with. And again, for me, when I say invitation, that's deliberate because job crafting has to come from the individual. It's not something a manager can say, these are some great job crafting ideas for you, Phil. I think you should do that. Yeah, okay. They may benefit you and they may have something that comes from it. But it's again, from my perspective, that's not job crafting because it's not driven by the individual. And one of the things that I'm I was maybe I found the kind of research and the idea of job costing so compelling was the fact that it was very much kind of bottom up driven by by the individual and their agency in in the process was is kind of critical and vital and that's um, something that I think kind of maybe lost in a lot of organisations but really important to me. Okay, so the so the intended consequence then was around for if we stick with Sally that was for Sally then to feel like she. Um, you know, had more, you know, was, was giving a better experience looking after customers more effectively and so on. So, for, if, and then likewise for the other lady, it was about, you know, feeling as though she made a difference in somebody's, um, in somebody's day. Yeah, that's right. But, but I would imagine though that Virgin Money didn't commission you to help individuals feel good. So what were, what were Virgin Money hoping would come for them either, you know, across the call center or, uh, you know, or within particular teams, what were they? What were they intending in terms of? Some well, of it's actually interesting. They were interested in me trying to make their life kind of make them feel good effectively. So, in terms of they, 
one of the areas that they were looking at and they generally within an organization and they have got very kind of positive engagement scores is, is and this was and this is a couple of years ago so again I'm, this is the the specific case that i'm doing now i'm sure they still have got positive scores but i'm just we want to be careful and clear yeah, 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 yeah. this relates to a specific project i did a couple of years ago um and they they were recognizing that um in in certain areas the the engagement scores weren't kind of um some of those areas they were dipping and this was across the organization not necessarily specific to the call center but they were okay. kind of dipping in some areas and maybe not they were kind of gone static and then they were they were getting anecdotal feedback in from a different and they've got to stop in a, you know be a bit careful and sensitive at the moment to the client in a second yeah, yeah, yeah and they, they were getting anecdotal feedback elsewhere that maybe the kind of the work environment that they wanted to create within virgin money wasn't being delivered in in all the areas they wanted to in the way that they wanted to the standards they wanted and they were very um the the people director matt elliott at the time was really clear that he um had a mandate to kind of um and a leadership leadership style that he wanted to promote a kind of diversity of ideas and approaches and experience and enable people to kind of bring those to life within the organization and they saw job crafting was something that enable people to do that because it tapped into the individual. So it was something that was very aligned to their, their approach of enabling people to bring their whole and best selves to work. So that's, that's generally what they wanted me to do, something to kind of consolidate and support that approach that they had with an organization. And one of the metrics that we used to kind of to, to, to measure this was around engagement, but also kind of in satisfaction as well that they had in terms of some, some existing data to see, okay. if it, see if it moved the needle on those, um, those, those uh those factors within the team and and, uh, and without kind of uh putting yourself in any um uh, delicate situations did and did those needles move yeah well enough that they wanted to commission it for the rollout for the rest of the organization so yeah yeah okay so and and it did i mean i've shared and i've been permission to kind of share the outcomes of it positively so it did within those within those groups the the actual project itself didn't quite get off the ground because there was a, a merger and acquisition within within it so it got more complex as these things happen but um the the kind of the pilot they were really pleased with in terms of the success of the work that we did okay um so i think i want to I think I want to take a, a, a step back a little bit, if I may, in terms of, so we started with um, kind of me saying, well, what is it then? Um, and you defined it as those smaller subtle changes um, that make better use of your strengths and your passions um, in the work that you do. Um, and we've then kind of got into, a, uh, I then levered a couple of challenges at you in terms of, doesn't everybody just do this anyway? And um, what about for when you have low autonomy or low control over um, over what you might do? And you talked about a few of those um, examples. What what was it that got you interested, or what got you into job crafting as a thing? Then that's a great great question. So I first came across job crafting when I was studying for masters in positive psychology. So I was I'm mean, a psychology undergraduate, and I've worked in kind of HR all my life and consultancy and kind of standalone roles. Okay. And I was searching for something um, new in terms of some some further kind of study and self self development. And Google, in this instance, was my friend. It's not always, but Google, in this instance, <laughs> my friend. And I was googling something, and something around positive psychology popped up, which is fundamentally the kind of studying of, of kind of flourishing and positive outcomes in different environments. So it'd be that from work or in life or within you know education in lots of different kind of contexts. It's around actually what does the science 
and say about creating those kind of positive outcomes in terms of um, how can we how can we do that? So it was something I found really intriguing. And okay. they just started a research centre in the University of Melbourne where I was working at the time as well. So I got funded to to work on the, the first master's program part time, and which was fantastic. And through one of the modules looking at uh, work. So one of the one of the as a throwaway line actually I think but one of the researchers and or lecturers were talking about the concept of job crafting and I was really intrigued and I could have was looked at it and thought this is this is fantastic and I'm always interested and a bit frustrated as well uh, particularly having worked in universities in in an HR capacity rather than a, as an academic one is the fact that we don't translate the kind of research and science into practice as much as we as we as we could and should do in my in my perspective amen to that my friend and so i was i was looking for kind of ideas that maybe potentially i could test out to see actually is there kind of a real world um practicality to this so again one of the if i was the critical of the research is that we don't they don't always make it easy for people to kind of apply these ideas in practice so job crafting i came across through my studies and at that time most of the research was correlational so they'd surveyed people and said to what extent do you kind of job craft? And, as, and I think there's a series of questions that people ask, but it's effectively to what extent are people kind of shaping how they act, their interactions with other people, the, the, how they think about their job, how much are people doing that deliberately? And is that related to um, any positive, positive outcomes or negative outcomes effectively? And, and the, the research at the time, and it's built, you know, it continues to build, shows there is kind of compelling kind of links between Kind of globally around kind of um, well-being and all different measures of well-being, and around kind of performance and, and around kind of growth in terms of career growth and kind of personal growth as well. So mm-hmm. there's kind of the, and <clears throat> different studies have found different findings, but within those broad things. But there wasn't at that time any research that um, had shown this being applied in practice. So well, actually, there was. I I found I tracked down someone who'd done it in their PhD, but it was actually a paper in Dutch that somehow a job crafting in it. And I made the contact with a person, which was quite interesting. And, and uh, it was Maggie van den Heuvel, who subsequently kind of published a number of papers on job crafting interventions. And she was the first person to kind of publish one. But other than that, at the PhD stage, there was nothing published. So I was really curious about this. And I said, right, for my, for my thesis, which I had to do for the masters, I'm going yeah. to test this out within the University of Melbourne context which has a really, universities have a really broad range of skill sets and roles that people have from finance, HR, kind of IT estates to academic roles. So it's a really kind of broad church of roles. And I just advertised sessions saying, are you curious about making um, your job kind of better and learning a way of approach to do that? And I ran workshops, designed some workshops based on the kind of research and theory and my own ideas of practice about how I could kind of uh, communicate these ideas and encourage people and, and enable them to make a job crafting change. And then I evaluated the results. Okay. And I found that initially I wanted 100 people for my pilot to see if they got there. And I ended up having to turn people away when I got to 250 people because I hadn't asked permission for this from the kind of HRT. I just kind of went off and did it um, and um, was kind of doing it at lunchtime and doing stuff. And it just got too big. So I kind of, I, there was clearly an appetite for it. People were interested in the recommending other people came to these workshops. Yeah. The results that I found weren't, in terms of the, in terms of the, the size, sample size, they weren't, in, in itself significant because I hadn't kind of reached the power of the, of the kind of, of the, of um, the number in terms of the numbers to kind of demonstrate that, but they did show a number of kind of positive outcomes and my anecdotal feedback I had from, from speaking to people and the feedback that people kind of wrote in terms of their questionnaires and the examples they gave of how they've used this was enough to convince me that this is something that was worth pursuing. 
And I'm really interested and curious about the fact that for whatever reason, job crafting just hasn't made the jump into kind of common understandings and um, within the kind of HR or kind of leadership community. It may be the way that say growth mindset, which is linked to kind of positive psychology principles as well, psychological safety have. And for whatever reason, they've kind of jumped in the people, if you talk about it, most people know there's there's eons of, of, um, articles written about them, but in terms of a research perspective, job crafting's up there with those, if not more, you know, if not got more peer-reviewed papers on this concept than others, and it just hasn't kind of hasn't translated yet. And there's, I've got lots of ideas about why that, you know, why that that is, but I'm hoping to challenge and change that um, from the book and from from the work that the work that I do. Okay, so um, we'll come back to that then. So we'll come back to why. Um, why don't you think it's translated from from those uh, peer review journals and, and that research kind of arm over into uh, into practice? Um, and that was a very long answer to your question, very short question, Phil, as well. So, oh, no, no, it's, it's just, it's, you, know, you can so you can it's, it's your your you know you're you're the guest, so you get the the freedom to to give me long or short answers. Um, and if you get boring, I'll cut you off. But other than that, you're okay. Um, so I think then what what you're describing makes me think a lot about my area of, of expertise or no so let me try that again what you're talking about reminds me a lot about my area of interest and passion um and, and that's about identity in the workplace and the different identities that we take in, in particular i'm interested in uh, as a, a researcher called irving goffman um he's a sociologist who back in the kind of 60s 50s 60s 70s talked about this notion of face uh, and face being uh, these sort of micro identities that we take. So when we when we take a line or when we take a, um, you know, we we take on these small uh, identities at different times, and, they, and those small identities can then aggregate up to be um, kind of uh, bigger aspects of, of who we are and what we do. And and his um, his research just doesn't appear in uh, in in practice at all. You know, so if you think about um, one of the hardest transitions I ever had was going from being a, a member of a training team. I was a trainer with a, alongside a load of other trainers and I was then promoted to be a training team leader. Um, it was a development opportunity, which meant I got no, I didn't get the formal title. I didn't get any salary, but that was a whole other bone of contention. Um, but the, the upshot of it was I had to renegotiate who I was. So I'd built an identity with my peers. And then when I got promoted, I had to renegotiate that. Because now, um, you know, I was now I was their manager. I was doing their appraisals. I was, you know, um, uh, observing them and feeding back on their performance. I was monitoring their, you know, monitoring their their actions and what they did and how they did it and all of those and all of those things. And and I found that renegotiation really hard. Partly because I got some poor advice from a colleague, but that that kind of renegotiation of who we are in the workplace is something that happens all of the time. And it's very, very rarely explored. So if I think about all of the kind of the first line manager development stuff that happens in the workplace or that I've experienced in the workplace, nothing in there talks about the renegotiation renegotiation of identity and relationships that you'll need to have with those people that are around you. It's all about, you know, the processes of being a manager. And, And it blows my mind that there is nearly 50 years worth, no, more than that, 60 years worth of research about the importance of this sociological phenomenon and it just has not made the transition over into the workplace and it just it, 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 over into practice should i say um because it's in the workplace the workplace is riddled with it but nobody knows or you know, it's out of awareness for most people that it's even happening 
Wow, yeah, I think that's a really good, <clears throat> interesting area. And I've, I must admit, I haven't come across specifically, we've mentioned some of the areas that you've kind of stumbled, I've stumbled on in terms of it from a, from a crafting perspective. And I think within the workplaces, we're so focused on task and output without embracing or understanding the kind of the innate humanity of people, the messiness of people, the kind of the complexity of it. And I think, again, from from my perspective, and from both we have a shared interest in ex, you know, kind of tapping into that, exploring it, because effectively you can't ignore it. And that's what makes us great and that's what makes us this human. But rather than just ignore it and hope it works, um, and some people are able to manage those challenges in the way that you've described and wrestle with them, which I'm sure you managed to, to do, but probably with some hard work and effort, is how can we actually make that, that easy and have better, more informed conversations and enable kind of managers themselves to reflect on this themselves, but also maybe the, the leaders that they report into have some kind of understanding that they can make that transition a bit easier for, for, for the people that they manage as well. So, yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I've got a shared a shared kind of um, kind of fascination by by kind of why that why that doesn't happen, um, and I think some of it's because it's 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 not output. It's le- it's less easy to manage. It. That's kind of one of the things I'd look at. But this this it's that's a really interesting observation, Phil. So let's stick with that for a minute then. So um, you mentioned that um, you got some ideas about why the the the. Can I say a plethora? Is there that much research on job crafting? Or so, is there... Well, to the plethora. So, in terms of in 2018, could have when I did the kind of rubber sites review, there was 140 peer-reviewed papers okay. about job crafting. There'd be and this is since 2001 when it was first kind of coined. So, and it's growing kind of it's every year it's kind of it's growing in terms of the number of kind of references and citations of, of job crafting papers with, as well. So, in terms of yeah. you look at references of 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 job crafting as a concept and and kind of foundational papers, they've been growing consistently. And then separately, papers which have job crafting at the kind of the heart of it, or one of the areas they're measuring in terms of the investigations or the paper, there's 140 of those now. Um, so it's substantial enough that there is meta studies and the systematic reviews as well, looking at the impact of job crafting as well. So there's, we're going to have that level that there is enough to have some confidence that it's, that it, can be impactful in certain scenarios when it's test when it has been tested in a variety of different different ways. So yeah, in terms of plethora, I wouldn't use plethora, but I think it's substantive, and I think the research is compelling. But that's my own personal kind of view and interpretation of it. It's supported by the by the systematic and meta analysis that I've seen and read. Okay, all right, and and so with that with that substantial um, body of evidence, then or that substantial and growing body of evidence. What what do you think are the things that have stopped it translating into practice that have kept it within that kind of academic and research setting rather than it translating over into into day to day practice and organisations? I think there's probably a load actually. There's probably lots. To that. So one is is around probably just within we're not always very good um, translating kind of academic ideas into practice. So in terms of okay. yeah, that, just that barrier and the fact that. The, the the people within within with academia for whatever reason don't always translate to practice that so thinking back to that conference that we both went to Phil I think there's probably yeah. five five practitioners that were there that I that I could have met or bumped into that I was aware of and the majority of people at that because CIPD conference for applied research were were academics themselves so I'd say yeah. I don't know if that's where your 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 observations kind of are the same or not um, 
Yeah, so I think there's um, there's a couple of bits. So one, I think it's that um, you know part of what makes a good academic isn't whether your work gets you whether your work makes a difference in the real world. You know, so in terms of what what do and I may be speaking out of turn for universities here, but my my impression or my understanding is that as a as a lecturer or as a researcher in academia, what um, what you're judged against is the types of articles that you publish in, how much publishing you do or how much research and or publishing that you do. Um, it's not necessarily about how your research or your um, your work is, is being taken and used and applied in the real world in that way. So I think in part the way that um, uh, the way that the system is set up is, is, is not set up to encourage research to be taken and used and applied in practice so yes i think there is a often there's um a challenge for research to be replicable and this is where something like say uh, growth mindset or and or um the notion of grit from angela so growth mindset from carol dweck and or the, the notion of grit by angela duckworth mm. um yeah that over the last probably 18 months to two years there's been a a a a, a I don't know how best to describe it, a toing and froing, I think. In the, vibe, yeah, yeah, vibrant debate about it. Yeah, 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 you know, in terms of the replicable, you know, the yeah. re- is that even a word? Yeah. The, re- the replicableness, I'll yeah. make up words now, um, of, uh, of some of those findings and or the, the, the degree to which they've been generalised across into, uh, into other areas. So I think without going on a, on a, on a diversion down that particular track, um, I'll save that for, uh, I've got a, uh, there's a there's a podcast recording in the pipeline between um, uh, myself and Good Practice. We're going to do a dual podcast, awesome, uh, on on growth mindset and grit in particular. We're going to go and unpick a lot of the literature and stuff that sits around it and go right. What's actually going on then? What's actually happening? Um, we're going to go and pick some of that stuff. So I'll save that, fair listener, for you for another day. Um, so in answer to your question, why do I think it it doesn't happen? So I think that the that, that's part of it. I think the way the academic system is set up, um, it's hard for um, it, researchers aren't encouraged to, to do so. And then if you get um, people like myself, who is a practitioner who also enjoys doing research, um, the the ability to take what I do in my practice and then bring that across and get it published is hard and takes time. You know, so one, so the paper I got published last year took me about 18 months to go from first draft to publish, which is actually quite quick in academic publishing terms. Um, I was quite lucky that I got to go in a special edition of a journal rather than in the normal kind of edition of. But that's one of the challenges that I find as a practitioner is that I can do some research now and it might take two years before that research actually gets published. Um, so even as a practitioner, trying to take what I do and, and, and further the research agenda, the time delay can almost make me think, well, what's the point? You know, I've moved on. I'm three projects further down the road now than I was when I when I did that piece of research. That was two years ago, um, because that's the, the 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 process that you need to go through in terms of writing the manuscripts, finding the right journal, submitting it to the journal, in it then getting reviewed, and there can be a massive delay between you submitting a paper and the time it, it gets reviewed and then gets fed back. So, um, I think that there needs to there needs to be more done, or there needs to be. I think that there there would be huge opportunities for both practitioners and researchers um, if more can be done to to make the transition from one to the other and back even better. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I'm nodding. I'm nodding um, kind of furiously to what you're, a lot of things you were saying that I feel. So I'd, I'd agree. I won't add to that. I think you've done that really eloquently in terms of the view. So I think that academic translation is one point because we asked about why has this not happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the kind of second, the second point would be around that there is a, there is an element of skepticism in terms of you're saying the people are concerned about what will happen if you allow people to kind of to kind of rip up their job descriptions wouldn't there be anarchy in terms of the the, the, the kind of the roles in the organization yeah uh, and i think so there is there is maybe people who are kind of skeptical about it and maybe a little bit kind of scared about it so in terms of when people hear about a concept of your leader hearing about some you know a conference and you hear about a number of different ideas and one of them involves you kind of ceding power and control and giving it to other people to to to, to kind of shape their roles a little bit you you may think that's maybe not the one I'm going to take forward. I may be doing something where actually I can I can lead on an initiative or tell other people they can <clears throat> adopt certain behaviours and perform but you know perform better. So it's a kind of more of a top down approach. And job crafting, obviously, as I've described, is very much a bottom up approach. It's mm. uh, not to say the leaders aren't critical and key in terms of enabling job crafting, but I think when people are seeing it, it it's not something that's kind of necessarily um, kind of something that people are kind of n- not all leaders naturally think this is something I really want to kind of explore and encourage within my, within my work environment. Uh, I agree. And, and, and therein lies the reason that you're on the podcast for me. Well, sorry, that's the second of the two reasons why you're on the podcast for me. So one is, you know, the impact that you were describing earlier that it had on Sally and the other lady in terms of the impacts on, on them and how they felt as they were driving home after reading their, their log of, um, you know, customer experiences or how they felt when their colleagues came up to them and said, you know what, when you do notes, that's really useful for me because it just means I can service the customer so much better. Um, and then the other kind of reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast is because of the, you know, the emotional impact it has for individuals, you know, maybe unfairly, but the, the, the emotional impact it has for managers to let somebody have that degree of freedom, even if it is only 10 minutes a month or sorry, 10 minutes a day, which is like an, uh, an hour a month, I think is what you talked about an hour a week, sorry, 10 minutes a day. So it's an hour a week um, of, of freedom to, you know, to shape or, or craft the job in the way that they do. Cause often, as you alluded to, um, you know, what we, what we think is better is if we control everything. Cause if we can, if we can control everything, then that makes for more efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that is something that that leaders are saying leaders are absolutely critical and and i think that we're having a shift as well i think in terms of there is a kind of recognition certainly the organizations that i work with i'm sure similar to yourself that are kind of interested in some of the ideas that we are kind of exploring and want encourage people to experiment with that the, 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 they recognize that actually it's it's getting the best out of people i'm saying lots of organizations talk around and labeling people to bring their best and whole selves to work and when you say whole selves that's their emotional absolutely their emotional selves yeah, too, yeah but they don't actually have any kind of evidence-based or kind of well thought out approaches to do that so they just kind of say it and hope that kind of happens and so i think leaders have an absolute kind of critical role is, is in, in enabling and creating the kind of opportunity for people to kind of personalize their 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 their, 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 their work and their, their experiences um so the so the first instance, if you're going to personalize something, there's lots of different elements to it, I'd say, in terms of personalization, but one of them is choice. In the first instance, if you don't give people that choice, then they're not going to get anywhere. And secondly, they need that opportunity. And if, they, if the manager says, we're not going to give you any opportunities, you shouldn't be doing this, then it's not going to happen. And similarly, people need energy to make changes to what they're doing. 
And if if they've kind of beaten down by their leaders or, or work in a controlling environment where they've tried multiple times to, to try new things and they're continually getting told not to do it, eventually over time they, they'll stop doing it. So um, you could need all those different kind of factors in terms of choice, opportunity and energy. And the leaders, I'd say, I argue are critical in terms of doing it. So so leaders in terms of their skeptical you know maybe this is saying when they when they're at a conference and they hear about four ideas and one of them is around giving and encouraging the people they manage and people in organizations to experiment more with their how they do their job some people are kind of maybe a bit concerned about some are really excited about it some are some are concerned and i think that's one of the reasons it hasn't translated and i think also just just in terms of um for whatever reason some ideas are kind of more and kind of get the zeitgeist and the more sexy and more kind of interesting yeah. than others. And I think for whatever reason, at this moment in time, job crafting hasn't hit it. But I, I do believe more and more, and particularly if you look at the future of work, where people are talking about hybrid jobs, which are having to kind of reimagine how work exists, we're going to shift our focus, particularly from in the HR community, I'd argue, around actually looking at job design in a way that we just haven't for a long time, and actually how jobs are kind of created and um, and enabled and job crafting I think could could provide one of the kind of um, mechanisms to enable people to kind of do that in a in a in a well thought out way it's not going to be the only solution to it and again I'm not naive enough to think job crafting is a panacea this, there, and we can talk about limitations as well I'm sure we'll, you'll ask me about them but it's I think it's in terms of when we hear everything we hear about in terms of the future of work it, kind of job design is, is key to that and job crafting sits within that as well from my perspective so i'm hopeful that we'll change and I'm hopeful conversations like this one conversation at a time makes a difference and i'm hoping things like the book um, and others will kind of change people's perspectives so that's the kind of i suppose a marketing aspect or kind of a sectionist aspect to it as well is one of the, one of the problems and there may be others have you got anything that i think i've missed there maybe you can relate it not only to job crafting but to maybe some of the work that you do Translated. Uh, so I, I, I don't know because I was listening to you. So I'm not sure to be honest. I was so busy listening to you. I haven't really, um, I haven't thought about it. So I, um, is there anything else I would add? I don't think so. Well, it's not for now anyway. Yeah. What I would like to do though is is come back to the three things you talked about. So choice, opportunity, and energy. So where did those come from? Are they are they kind of because one of the questions I had was about what are the variables that, that seem to either encourage or enable job crafting? And I think what you've done there, I think, is, is list either those three or at, least, or at least list three of the variables that can encourage or enable job crafting. So yeah. Where, where did choice, opportunity and energy come from? Are they um, behind my, where I'm standing at the moment. So I literally, towards the end of the book, and challenging, it's like we need a conclusion in terms of here, in terms of what can, how can we make, people make it accessible? And yeah. I was, I was, so this was a formula that hasn't been tested. It's something that literally I've, I've, I'm, I've putting out there to people to say, this is my, my, my kind of um, suggestion in terms of some factors that you need to consider when you're looking at personalization. Okay. Um, and that's it. So, there, so, so it's informed by the reading that I've done, informed by the kind of research, but it's, but it's the ideal, that kind of formula is something that I just kind of popped into my head well not popped into it a bit of kind of thinking behind it it could have and um, but there's no kind of under theoretical underpinning to it that i can kind of point to specifically yeah that's uh, okay that's okay so, so so think, tell, tell me a bit more about those three then so from yeah. your from your perspective so yeah tell me more about why, why those three why are those three the the, the hooks that you're hanging it off so, so i was so my perspective in terms of if you're thinking about um any element and this is 
broadlets and just job crafting, but personalization and the fact that that when I've had conversations with people who are saying, well, actually, you know, we allow, I'm allowed to kind of, people say on the face of it, my, my leader says I can job craft. They can, you know, I've got opportunities to do it. But in reality, when you kind of say, why don't you? They're saying, well, actually, I've got so much, you know, so much to do. And, okay. and in terms of the outputs I need to do that I haven't got those kind of time energies. That's one example. So I was thinking, okay, so that, they, theoretically, they've got the, they're saying there's a choice there. They could, they could do it, but they haven't maybe got the, Kind of the opportunity or the energy to do it because they're they're spending it elsewhere and i think the energy aspect is something that i recognize that if you want to do something differently from your standard behaviors your, your routine habits and behaviors and you want to experiment something you need to that takes effort and if you haven't got the kind of energy if you're not in the right kind of state to do it then it's going to be very hard to have the motivation to do it similarly if you want to kind of start a new kind of i don't know a new diet or a new habit or whatever if you're not in a if you haven't got kind of full of energy if you're not rested it's going to be that much harder to do it so that's kind of the energy aspect of it the choice was around actually fundamentally you need to have that opportunity there it's either there or not and then the opportunity is actually can you can you take it forward so if you think about um i don't know flex you know in terms of people's working hours or where they people work from in terms of their kind of flexible you know working from home you could say people can personalize their their working week in terms of where they work so they may have lots of choice because the universe the organization may say you can work, you know, you can work anywhere, you know, it's up to you. Yeah. But in reality, if the manager is saying, actually, we want everyone to be here kind of regularly and, yeah. and we want to, it's important to me that we have kind of here for one-to-ones and they maybe don't embrace technology and that, that may impede that kind of opportunity aspect of it. Okay. And then in terms of, again, some people will have the energy or the courage to kind of challenge it anyway. And so, well, actually, the policy says this or the kind of the organization says this, I'm going to do it and others, others necessarily won't have the kind of energy to, to, to fight it or to try different things. So for me, it's when I'm encouraging people to, and I was speaking to a group of HR um, uh, leaders and managers last week, and I was saying, when you're looking at a a kind of a policy or an approach, um, or even something such as change, maybe think about these different factors in terms of are they there? So in terms of change, is there is, is people's opportunity to actually influence that in some respects? So have they got a choice in terms of how that change is done to them or have they got a choice as they input it? Have they got the opportunity to share those ideas in terms of how the um, the, the kind of the change initiative, whatever it is, is introduced and have they got the kind of energy are they in the place to be able to do that? Because sometimes again, people say, well, we asked people if they want to do this, but no one showed up or no one's made any suggestions. And it doesn't mean to say that no one, they haven't got the ideas. It's just that either they haven't had the opportunity to do it because they're so busy or they're just so um, kind of downtrodden that they just haven't got the energy to kind of suggest them in the first instance. Yeah, okay. And, and uh, certainly the, when you talk about change, that the choice aspects of it came out in the, uh, in the podcast I recently did with Hilary Scarlett about organizational change. You know, she talked about um, the importance of choice within that. You know, even if you can't cho- choose, um, if you can't, even if you can't, so let me try again. So you can't necessarily choose the change, but you might be able to choose kind of the way the change works or how the change goes or the, the process that the change is communicated by or, you know, but anything you can do to give, um, you to give more of the choice from an, uh, you know, has a, has, has a beneficial outcome or result or an impact on what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to, I really enjoyed that, that interview. So I think she gave an example about chairs and if you haven't listened to that, 
podcast. And I stop listening to me now. You got my permission. Go and listen. To- <laughs> no, stay. stay <laughs> it was really good. It was a really good. I really enjoyed it. So uh, yeah. So she gave some really good examples there about choice. But again, choice is not just enough to give choice. You know, people have got the opportunity, energy to actually follow through with it because yeah. it's just not going to happen. So that's the that's kind of where that that formula came through. And I still, it's not. I'm saying it, it is something that I've. Um, there's there isn't a kind of theoretical um, direct link to to a kind of particular academic who's presented it, but it's just my yeah, okay. synthesis of what's of what's of what's out there. That's all right. All, all ideas have got to start somewhere, so that's all right. That's okay. Um, so in terms of the, um, you mentioned about uh, well, do I want, no. So you mentioned about limitations, and I want to come back to that. So um, before that, though, is there a difference between job crafting and micro crafting or are they just like variations on a theme so again in terms of the kind of gaps of research so when i was in look studying for this in the first instance i, I mentioned most of the research had been kind of correlational so being looked at kind of job crafting activity and it was kind of it was it didn't really there wasn't any analysis at the time of what the makeup of the job crafting activity was so it was just the same okay. did, did you do it Rather than catching how, yeah, how did you, you do it and how do you feel? Yeah, okay. yeah. So one of the pieces of the research that, that I kind of undertook with with the university, the Centre of Positive Psychology in Melbourne, was to actually um, that workshop example I mentioned in Melbourne. I collected yeah. lots of examples and we actually analysed them, and we found that the majority of of the job crafting activities that people did were tended to be pretty small, so like ten minutes a day or less, which is why I've used it for workshops in terms of encouraging people to do it. So just to start it small. And I, all together with Gavin Slemp, who's the academic that I was working with, we kind of came up with this idea of micro crafting. So kind of job crafting in a sense is making any changes to your job. Micro crafting is specifically and intentionally making small changes to your job. Well, that's certainly the way that we present it as an, as an idea. And we think it could be useful as a, as an idea, both in kind of research and in practice in terms of um, enabling and starting people on their job crafting kind of journeys. The opposite of the kind of micro crafting is macro kind of job crafting. And I've come across examples of people who've completely kind of created their own jobs over time and through the work that they've, they've done. So people can kind of craft um, in a really substantive big way, but the area that I've, I suppose I've seen that most people do this and this has subsequently been kind of ratified by other, other um, kind of research that people tend to do it in, in small ways. Okay. Um, on a day-to-day basis and that's why i think we just from a practical point of view i'm interested in making it happen so let's start from my in my perspective it's let's start small um and as i said if people approach it more playfully generally when you start it small it's it's something that there's low low stakes so it doesn't matter if it doesn't doesn't go doesn't doesn't go right or go wrong so so out of interest then like if you had to choose between and i know the revenues would obviously be better if you went for a big four knowledge economy consulting firm um but if you could choose between, you know, a, a firm of panel beaters in Solihull and, you know, one of the big four consulting firms, would you rather go after the panel beaters in Solihull? Because there's, you know, because the, the potential, if I'm, if I'm interpreting what you said correctly, the potential in a big four consulting firm, for example, might be actually macro crafting. But in terms of the micro crafting aspect of things, are your, is your panel basis from Solihull going to be more um, applicable for the type of, of research that you might want to do in the future? Or am I talking out my ass? Um, 
I don't think I've ever heard you talk out your ass, Phil, but maybe that was <laughs> look, I'll look out for that in the future. <laughs> I think in terms of, there's a couple of things in that question. Who would I like to work with? I think the, the I, I'm interested in seeing and hearing about the changes through the, re- you know, the application of the ideas. And so it doesn't, I'm relatively agnostic about what audience I'm serving within, within that. But okay. I do think that we as, as certainly within, and I'm talking the HR community here in terms of speaking to people, make, make assumptions about what people can and can't do in terms of say that you can't do this, you've got a low autonomy job or you can do this. So they kind of, for whatever reason, they don't make the grade in terms of saying these ideas aren't applicable to you. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's maybe giving them a disservice in terms of, in terms of the role. And it may not be that they want to, maybe people within that group, there may be more people who are just happy just to do their job. Um, and show up and aren't interested in ideas. Again, that's a sweeping statement. It may not be, it may not, you know, may not be true. So I think the makeup of that group may be more complex in terms of the, the reasons for their working and the extent to which they're doing it, kind of for a sense of meaning and 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 um, fulfilment for their wider life. But I think we need to be careful that we're making assumptions about what what doesn't doesn't apply to them. I think the areas that I've had the most fun from working with is when organizations have taken this as a whole kind of organization approach in terms of saying, actually, we want to encourage everyone, no matter what job you're doing, from the call center or from the cleaning kind of crew to the kind of C-suite applying these ideas. Yeah, okay. Like the shared language, that's when I'm getting really excited. I've, and I've, had, I've been really lucky to do that with a couple of clients where they've actually really embraced this idea. And, and, they've got, and I've got examples from literally kind of all levels of the organization where they've they've implemented this idea so i'll give you i mean, we've talked about two examples and maybe i'll give you a couple more a more senior or mid-level as well just in terms of how people oh yeah that's what i was going to say you know so uh, <clears throat> so in terms of how they use it so one example we had which stuck stuck in mind and i won't name this client um because i haven't got kind of permission to to formally to kind of use it but there was that as the um senior senior level yeah and, and they were saying that they what mattered to them was was kind of connecting other people but and they spent all their time with people in meetings and things but they ran from one meeting to the next and their their, their day had been diaried you know to the inch of its life by their kind of uh, yeah, the age with the best positive intentions yeah, yeah they didn't actually connect with people because they were literally running from meeting to meeting so what they decided to do with their five or ten minutes a day was to actually um kind of have a rather than sending an email once a day, they'll go out and speak to someone or pick up the phone to talk about an issue if they could do. Now, again, this is practical realities. They may not be able to, it, the opportunity may not afford it themselves every day, but when they could, that's what they did. They, that's what they wanted to do. Okay. Every day they did it. They described it as if they were kind of swimming against the tide of their diary. You know, they should be doing this, but they wanted to just make this connection and do this. And it, you know, invested five minutes, so it was, it was fine. Um, and they felt that they were taking control of their day. They felt positive for the connection they were making. And it made us, you know, made a small and subtle but significant difference in terms of they were wrestling a bit more control of their day. Because in reality, you don't think this, you think they've got loads of, you know, autonomy, but actually at the senior levels, a lot of the time, they don't have much control over their diaries and things. It's kind of dictated to them by others, which, again, it surprised me, but that seems to be kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And that's actually subsequently been kind of played out in terms of some research about job crafting at the CEO level actually in terms of the again the center of positive psychology in the Melbourne and that have kind of come out but the so that was an example and again the unintended consequence of this is this person noted a month later that one of his colleagues came out and actually 
um, was saying to them, you've been walking the corridors a bit more. Is that a deliberate thing to kind of get out and about to be seen? You know, because that's the kind of something that people might say in a, in a, in a, in a conference yeah. of the management thing. You know, you need to be walking the walk. and are going to be pressing the flesh. Exactly, pressing the flesh. That's exactly right. And that was, you know, the antithesis of what the idea behind it. But, the, but this five-minute change had been noticed by colleagues and in okay. terms of their dynamic and so it made a difference to their colleagues as well in terms of this person was a bit more approachable you know they say they're approachable and i've got an open door policy but if you're never in the office or if you always kind of head down because you're you're running from me to the next in reality you're not you're not that accessible so that was just one example another example was with a change team so who worked in kind of project management from it perspective and they okay. would always have retrospectives in terms of their their work so they did so they would Kind of after a month after the project had landed, delivered, they'd have a meeting, they'd say what went well, what had gone, you know, what hadn't gone well, what could have differently. But they found that actually those conversations, they were still kind of quite, uh, kind of, it was everyone's interest to kind of not pick over the bones too much. The kind of relationships were still quite tense in terms of because they just delivered the project. Okay. And so it wasn't maybe necessarily everyone's interest to kind of actually really deeply reflect on what, what kind of, what was the, what went well and what didn't go well. Um, but what they wanted to do, they, so they, they decided that what they're going to invest in there an hour week to meet up with customers that they deliver projects for a year ago. So go back in about you know, six to 12 months in terms of projects they delivered to. And what they found is they had conversations about things that went well and went didn't work well. The big stuff, the things that stuck in people's minds, the mm. fact that they were six or 12 months ago meant there was no stakes in the game. So if they could, they could be much more open in terms of their kind of feedback that they, they got from the, from the, uh, from the conversations. And they, they found a number of different kind of things that kind of came out from these discussions that then that they used to kind of shape how they manage their, their ongoing projects, as it were. So they learned quite a lot from these, these kind of retrospective six months, 12 month conversations that you wouldn't normally have had. Yeah. Okay. Wanted to do it. The, the, the driver for it was that he wanted again to feel that he was making a difference in terms of his projects. So that sometimes he felt that actually his projects maybe wasn't delivering the impact that they, they wanted to in terms of that was the intent of it was to deliver efficiency savings or make life easier for people but in reality he sometimes wondered whether they actually did or didn't you know in reality yeah. so that was the purpose of it and he found actually that there was positive outcomes for it and the feedback he got was something that was different a different context and shape and nature from the than the traditional kind of textbook retrospectives that happened a month kind of afterwards so again you kind of stumble upon um, opportunities for learning um, and unintended consequences from these, from having small experiments and making doing your job differently. And, and what I really like about that is, um, so I really like two things. So one, really useful, um, different perspectives, you know, and different examples and case studies from what you talked about earlier on, which I think is fab. Um, also, selfishly, um, everything you just described is all about um, face and face work. The, the, all, everything, I'm like sat here with a, as a researcher going, that's all to do with face and face work. <laughs> because it's, it's all about how um, by, doing it, um, by doing it quickly, the likelihood of, of threatening somebody's credibility, so the likelihood of threatening their face, so whether it be you know, threatening the relationship in terms of, oh, we've just finished this work, and if I say it didn't go very well, then that might damage our relationship, or by, by threatening somebody's competence and their ability to do their job, so saying that project didn't, didn't, and, didn't land or didn't deliver as well as it could have done, then that could be threatening their, um, you know, their competence and their ability to do their job. Likewise, the companies invested loads of, you know, said this is a really important thing and now we've done it so if i say it didn't really work then that's going to you know threaten the the 
the, um, the reputation of the company and, and all of those things. But whereas when you do it once the stakes are less, then the, the degree of threat becomes less, which means often the honesty mm. increases. So, um, yeah, it makes me smile. I'm like, look, it's there. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Like, again, but, so it, and, it's, and it's one of those things that, that was that the individual could have gave themselves permission to do or they could have, I say, it may have been the threat, the way you've described it, it makes complete sense to me. And I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms before. But it, and it wasn't saying this is what you should do because this is this is not it. It was just something the individual could have tried. Found yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the, the thing that I'm fascinated by is how do you create more of those opportunities for kind of learning and growth and development that, that benefits everyone, and by just changing how you do your your your, your job in a day to day day process. And yeah. Uh, okay, so I I, I want to start to to bring us together and wrap us up then. So one of the things that I keep saying I'll talk about and I don't is limitations. So you mentioned that there are some some limitations around job crafting slash micro crafting. So what might be some of those then? Yeah, so it's kind of limitations in terms of the research itself. I think it's really important to say that when I said that there's lots of research and it's kind of, kind of compelling, there is kind of also the kind of caveat that. Within, within all research, the kind of quality of that, even though the peer review papers may be, may be kind of mixed. And I think within context is that different researchers will have slightly different kind of uh, descriptions of job crafting or how okay. they've seen it or the questions that they've used to measure it. And that's a kind of frustration for everyone. But, and again, there's, there's lots of reasons to explain it in the fact that for most researchers want to do unique research, that's the purpose of it. So everyone, it's not in everyone's interest to necessarily replicate previous research will use someone else's kind of definition of it of, of the job crafting and they always kind of so people are constantly tweaking and changing this so so in terms of while i do believe that the majority of the research is looking at the same phenomena the kind of from a very specific definition perspective you I, you can't hand on heart say all those papers were looking at it exactly the same way you just don't know and okay. i think obviously within the context within the organizations that people are operating with they weren't the same organizations so all of it was different so again, that's a kind of, I think that's a kind of um, a limitation in terms of the, re- the kind of the, the research in terms of probably the two biggest, biggest ones from, 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 from my, my perspective. Okay. Um, so I think in terms of the actual, so that's from a research perspective, from a, from a practical perspective, the limitations of the fact that it's not always job crafting. You aren't always going to get the outcomes that you expect and they aren't always going to be positive. So an example that we kind of came across, and this is someone with an HR team was yeah, saying okay. they worked they work they were finding they're working too much in terms of the balance of their work they were doing too much work in the evenings and even though they were checking their emails and and doing stuff every time they're doing it they know they didn't really want to be doing it um but they felt compelled to do it and okay it's having an impact on their, their work so one of the things they wanted to do was just say right i'm gonna from now on i'm just not gonna do this anymore i'm not gonna check my emails at all full stop cold turkey kind of thing do it and after two weeks, they were kind of asked about it in terms of when we kind of called back. They, they said they actually they felt worse because they felt they were letting people down. They felt they weren't doing their job properly. And actually, it took away an element of flexibility because occasionally they would just leave work a bit earlier or whatever. They knew they could do some work in the email. So that kind of self-enforced, I'm going to stop doing this. Yeah, okay. lead to improving lower levels of stress and well-being. If anything, actually increased them a little bit because they were like, I'm not staying on top of my work. I'm not managing it. So actually what well, they, they softened it in terms of saying, well, actually on a Monday and a Friday, I'm not going to do this. That's, that was their kind of, their, their kind of guiding lights in terms of saying, yeah, okay. yeah. And actually they, they, they did do it in the evening, but they were more mindful when they did it. So they were more deliberate when they did it in the evening. So that's an example of where you think stopping doing something is going to, going to, um, going to lead to a better outcome, but it doesn't. And similarly from a research perspective, 
from the job crafting is that there is a we know that when people stop or reduce activities there is more likely that that the results may be negative as well as positive whereas if you add to your task or do something that's engaging or build on something you exist and you know you like doing that's generally a, will lead to a positive outcome could okay. almost you almost i'm gonna say almost universally very much focus on the almost but if you're doing something where you're reducing or limiting something there is more of there's less of a um, certainty that that's going to lead to a positive outcome. And there's lots of reasons for that in terms of social pressure that I've mentioned, feeling that you're maybe not able to cope with your job exists. You know, the, the only reason you're doing this is because you're reducing um, um, the, that if you're say doing working over too much overtime, the reason you're doing it is because you're not doing, you're not good enough at your job. And if you stop doing just because you stop doing overtime doesn't mean to say you're going to get better at doing your job, if that makes sense. So it's, yeah, it does. Yeah. It's, so <clears throat> that's kind of one, one, another kind of limiter. And thirdly, I'd say, and there's more than this. Um, uh, thirdly, I'd say is that there's a risk in terms of if there is, if you're encouraged to do this by say the organization says, I think everyone should job craft and yet your manager says, no, you can't, you will actually feel worse than if you hadn't been introduced to the concept of job crafting in the first instance. So actually you kind of take a step back, by being impeded from job crafting, yeah, okay. not able to do it, and I think that's why people need to be cautious and and careful about this in terms of the context that you you that you're kind of trying to introduce this for. So whilst I'm optimistic that it can have a positive benefit in most environments that I've come across, provide it has to have the caveat of this of I suppose the opportunity and um, and the energy to to do that. If you take those away then actually people may feel worse because they're feeling they're being in Congress within the organization. They're saying one thing, but actually the reality is something different and that can make people feel worse. So there's just the top of my head, some, some kind of things to be kind of curious and, and, and think about. And then the others would be around job crafting into the limitation is why are you doing it? You know, you asked about the Virgin money, why do they do it? Yeah. You've got to be, you know, what's the, what's the evidence? What are you trying to fix? Why are you trying to, to encourage this as an idea? If you're just introducing it as an idea itself, and it's not linked to something that you're trying to achieve or you've got something you want to come an outcome of this, then, then I, I question kind of why, you know, why are you doing it? Not saying you shouldn't do it, but I think it's always useful to kind of have a, have a clear and strong kind of reason for doing, for doing it. Um, and, and ideally evaluate how, what, what the outcomes are as well. So take more of an evidence-based approach. Yeah. Okay. Fab. Wonderful. Um, Okay, so let's do a, a few kind of wrap up questions then. So are there, um, and, I, and I'm asking this for certainty because no, as, as being part of the conversation, I think you talked about these already, but I just want to be sure. Are there any myths or misconceptions around kind of this personalization and job crafting that you would like to address or put to bed that we haven't talked about already? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a great invitation. I wouldn't say anything that jumps out of my mind. I think the key thing is that, that it's not a panacea. So that is the one thing in terms of it's not saying it's going to fix everything. But I do think that, that people could be curious about seeing if it does or doesn't work within, within for yourself or within your, with your organization. I think the others is that it, job crafting isn't around necessarily kind of redesigning your incomplete job and kind of ripping apart your job description. That's the kind of, I think that's sometimes a concern or maybe even how it's portrayed sometimes in a, in a sexy, glamorous way in terms yeah, of okay. what you can do. But that, in the reality, the hard reality of it, that's not either achievable or nor from the research. Um, that, and the cases that I've seen actually is the, is the reality of it, that people do the small stuff, again, which isn't the sexy stuff, which comes back to this, this marketing aspect that we've talked about a little bit in terms of it's maybe less glamorous than, than 
than some people make it out to be that kind of talk about it. So they're probably two things that jump out at me. But okay. I think it's a really good discussion. So, so um, no, I think we've had a good chance to talk about it. Fab, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, in that case, then, if, uh, if so, let's, we haven't done it yet. So let's plug the book. Do, right. So, Rob, here we go. Floor is yours. Book plug coming in three, <coughs> two, one, go. So the klaxon's going now, I imagine. I hadn't thought about this before. I need to do better with my picks. So the, the, the book is called Personalization at Work, and it's my attempt to bridge the gap between the research and practice. So I've got kind of spend time focusing on actually what the evidence tells us about job crafting, what it doesn't, what the limitations. And from that, it's, it's saying actually what are the kind of examples of actually how you can bring this to life. So talking about different, uh, looking at different organizations, ranging from Logitech and Google to widow airlines to connect health to virgin money so lots of different and Leeds university so different settings of how people have used job crafting so lots of stories and and then the focus at the end is around for me it's around actually what are the kind of practical ways if you're curious about this what could you do to kind of explore and experiment with this as yourself but also with your team and colleagues so that's the kind of so it sounds like I'm trying to do everything with the book, um, and maybe that's maybe that maybe that's uh, we'll find that that is a criticism of it. But I but I'm trying to make something practical and accessible, but research involved. So if, if I look at the the people that you've got to do the kind of the endorsements at the start of the book, when you when you've got the likes of Adam Grant in that list, then I think you I think you're doing it. You're off to a, a strong start, if I may say so, Mr. Baker. Yeah, it's very one of the things I would say about writing the book is was it around it gave me an opportunity to kind of contact and interview and speak to some of my kind of research, but kind of practitioner heroes in terms of their perspectives. And that was a real joy and privilege in terms of what I did. And so, yeah, Adam Grant, Sharon Parker, oh, there's too many to kind of, I'm going to miss people if I start doing this, but Carrie Cooper. Yeah, so let's, not, let's not do that. Let's not, let's not do the role list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're people that kind of, I really kind of admire and their thinking and their writing and their kind of their research. So it was great to, to kind of speak to them. Oh, good. All right. Um, and if people wanted to get in touch with you, how would you like uh, our fair listener to get in touch? So probably the best thing to do for the, about the book, you can look at the personalization at work and you can spell the personalization with a Z or an S, um, but both of their names. <laughs> or tailoredthinking.co.uk is, the, is um, the kind of business address. And there's, there's some tools and uh, for people who don't actually want to pick up the book, I've tried to make some kind of resources and references and tools available to people on the website tailoredthinking.co.uk. Um, so people can check that out as well. Fab, wonderful. Thank you. And I'll, put, I'll make sure um, uh, I put links to all of those in the show notes. Yeah. And separately, LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that. I'm, I'm really interested and happy to share anything that, that I know or don't know, as it were, um, with, with people. Okay. So I'll put links to website, to book on, um, on the generic online shopping store. Um, and I'll put links to uh, your Twitter and your LinkedIn bios as well perfect so as my final question as always then is there anything else then that you're thinking feeling or want to say no i think that's it i think one thing question you sometimes ask people that i could have prepared to is just in terms of other oh, resources that people have. oh yes of course sorry yeah i would um just i'll send them through to you but there's a couple of um short videos that i think when i'm introducing job crafting that i think are really really useful one of them was by amy Vinisky, who's the kind of founder of the concept of the term and okay. a good talk so that's something i'd kind of a link to and the other is um, a researcher called Arnold Bakker who is um, an occupational psychologist but he makes all his kind of papers and material as, as accessible as he can do on the website and he's also a good follow on Twitter so I'll send you through his Twitter kind of handle on his website oh, yes please people are interested in that they can look at it and his 
he's written some chapters on a number of papers about job crafting, but they, and he does his best to make them all kind of openly available. Whether they should be or not, I don't know, but it's, it's great, and they're on his website. So okay. we share that as a resource. Fab, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, all right, anything else? No, I think that's it. Just to say thanks so much, and thanks for, for, for the series that you're doing. I, I personally can benefit from it quite a lot. So, uh, oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I, you know, great to contribute. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks for coming on. All right, thanks, Rob. Thanks, Bill. Bye. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, and if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams, or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.